Week four in our study, We Are the Church. And I want to start by asking you a really important question. Have you ever considered leaving your faith behind? In those quiet moments of pause where you're aware of your internal struggle or maybe in the seasons where life has just bowled you over and what you thought your following Jesus would produce has somehow fallen short. Maybe you've discovered that coming to Jesus was the easy part, but following him, living for Jesus. No wonder he said, take up your cross every day. It's a a hard thing sometimes. The stands we take are not popular in culture. Culture presses us to fit in, to let go of beliefs that separate us from the pack. Family might put pressure on us to come back to the comfortable traditions and viewpoints of our upbringing. Could be all sorts of reasons. Maybe you haven't seriously entertained leaving your faith, but maybe you've taken one step in that direction just by going into neutral, especially in this season right now when uh, you don't need to be in church. Maybe wanting to be in church was replaced to just wanting to be home and then engaging completely has disappeared. Maybe um, you're finding us for the first time in a a rare, long season of really not tuning in to anything spiritually. You've, in a sense, not said you've left Jesus, but you've paused, put it on hold. Well, I want you to know, you are not alone. That struggle of faith is a part of every believer's life, and while some seem to be constantly overcoming it, it's something that believers have struggled with all the way back to the beginning of the Christian faith. In fact, you have a lot in common with a group of young Christians in the second half of the first century of the church who lived in Rome who were struggling with whether or not following Jesus was the path that they were going to continue on even though they had made a commitment to follow Jesus. The book that is addressing those people in their struggle to stay in their faith journey and therefore has so much to say to all of us today is the New Testament book of Hebrews. And we're going to spend the next nine weeks of this series in that book as we look at this amazing, beautiful, profound book through just a few stops along the way related to life as the people of God. Nine statements over the next nine weeks that all begin in the book of Hebrews with these two words, let us. What we are to do, who we are to be together uh, as God's people. But before we go there, let me give you the background so you can jump in and realize just how amazing this book is. Some of the most beautiful passages, some of my favorite in all of the Bible are from the book of Hebrews. It is theologically rich. Uh, all at the same time, it's troubling in some of its, uh, its statements. And the let us statement we're going to look at today is, is a tough passage because it addresses this very thing that we've talked about in terms of 
holding on to our faith, not letting go of it. But let's talk about the background first. So imagine that you are a Hellenistic Jew. You are part of the diaspora of Jews that have accepted the Hellenistic, the Greek influence on culture, while at the same time preserving your traditional beliefs and practices. But you are not part of that group that we might call the Aramaic-speaking people of the land of Israel. But yet your life is attached to a people whose history is rich, whose connection with Jehovah is the centerpiece of history filled with incredible traditions and practices and celebrations. And you have come to understand that that faith has a Messiah and his name is Jesus. And you've committed to following Jesus. And what that has done is led you into this new way of life that is informed by the old way of life, but uh, basically set free from the regulations and the requirements of the Old Testament law, and also many of those rich traditions and festivals. Your life now as a father of Jesus is a very simple one, in community, centered on being together around this single tradition known as the Agape Feast and the celebration of the Lord's table. But your life has become simple, not ornate. First century Christianity was completely without pageantry and tradition as it has developed over the last 2,000 years. And this is now your life. But Judaism is broadly accepted across the Roman Empire. As long as the Jewish people pay their taxes, they're reasonably ignored, they're in business, they're, they're thriving, the Jewish people. But Christians are not. It's hard to be a Christian. Christians are, uh, are being persecuted, Verbally, at times, they are being persecuted physically and put to death and imprisoned. And within the Christian faith, there are those who come out of the Jewish tradition, the Aramaic Jewish tradition, who are saying you don't leave your Jewishness behind. In fact, Greek men need to be circumcised. You need to come under the law. Uh, the, the cross and Jesus was wonderful, but it's not enough, obeying the law is still a part of it. They were called the Judaizers, and so because you came from a Jewish tradition, you had that pushing on you. Maybe you had your family saying to you, come on, come on back. It's, it's a lot safer back here in the old ways. And so you have watched some of your kindred make that decision. They've decided it's, it's really too hard. It's easier to go back and they have left your community of Jesus followers and gone back to the old ways. And you're wondering if that's a decision for you. And it's in this season that a letter comes to you from a trusted source. We don't know exactly who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, but we know it comes from this period. It could have been the Apostle Paul himself if not Paul, it would have been Barnabas or Apollos, trusted voices to the Christian community. And it's writing to you to address this very temptation. And the writer begins in Hebrews chapter 1, the very first words 
target directly this very challenge of whether or not going back to the old ways is better than life with Jesus. When he writes, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels themselves as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And thus begins one of the most beautifully written, theologically rich, and meaningful books in all of Scripture, through which the author will make the case that only Christ brings salvation, only Christ brings forgiveness, only Christ satisfies, and only Christ deserves our adoration our worship, and our praise. And he will make the case very early on that Christ fulfills and is superior and wins over every aspect of the old covenant. Christ is greater than angels. He is greater than Moses himself. He is greater than the Old Testament priesthood. His new covenant replaces and is therefore greater than the old covenant that never brought a lasting forgiveness and spiritual rest. And now, because of Jesus, we are part of God's true people, the people of faith, the true spiritual descendants of our father Abraham. Not because of the law and obligation, but a people of faith and grace. And there is a beautiful way that God plans for these people, his people, to live together. And he presents that path with the nine exhortations of things that we are to do and to be as God's people in this book. It's a beautiful thing. And it speaks, I think, quite directly to that constant challenge that the world and the enemy of God himself will put against us. And so with that in mind, Let's go to the first of these stepping stones through the book of Hebrews, where we see exhortations of who these true people of God are, the challenges, and the things that we are to do together. Key interpretive element to this series now as we go forward are those two words, let us capture the reality of that. These are not things that you can sit in the solid of your home or of your own spiritual ideas and thoughts and experience. You are part of God's tremendous people. We need to, we were meant to, we must do these things together. And the first such exhortation is in the fourth chapter of the book, and we're going to begin by just reading the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 4 where the writer begins, Therefore, 
since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful. That's the first phrase. Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they had, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Now in more current translations, that word let us be careful is a bit soft for the language. If you're reading out of the old King James Version, there's a whole different word there. And it appears a little angry and and fearful, but I think it's quite accurate when the translation says, let us fear. The actual Greek word is the word, is rooted in the word phobos. And it's even stronger than fear. It, It is often translated as be terrified. So let's be clear here. Even though we understand the great truth of scripture that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. The writer of Hebrews intends this statement to be unsettling about faith. It's supposed to be troubling, not comforting. There is a degree of concern that he has and he wants his readers to have about the faith that is itself being challenged and questioned and the risk that they are facing. And in some ways, it's a risk that Christians face all the time, 24-7, every day of their life, as they try to live out this life of faith in a world that is contrary to that. Now, what does he mean when he talks? There's a couple of key phrases in here. Entering, the promise of entering into God's rest. What is that all about? Why do we need to be careful if it's about faith? Um, who is it that also heard the good news? Whatever we know what we mean by that, but what does the writer of Hebrews mean by that? These are all important phrases that we can only really understand if we go back now and read a little farther back and understand the illustration that the writer is making when he goes back to the people of God in the Old Testament, in particular, the people of exile, the lost generation who never made it to the promised land. And so go back back up with me to verse 12 of chapter three. It's not gonna be on the screen, so just listen or find it in your Bible as I read it. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. He's right on point here in terms of the theme and the people that he's writing to. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction, synonymous for faith, firmly to the very end. As has just been said, quote, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as you did in the rebellion. 
It's an Old Testament reference. And what does he mean by the rebellion as an illustration for the challenge to hold on, hold firmly to our faith? Well, he goes on and explains that, verse 16. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter God's rest because of their unbelief. Now he goes on and we see what he means by therefore in the passage we began with. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be terrified that none of you be found who have fallen short of it. So what the writer is doing is is using the story of the Old Testament, which he will use throughout this book to to help us understand that all of it pointed to the need for the cross, to the solution of the true Lamb of God, who made it possible for us to come boldly before the throne of grace, not in fear. He will constantly use the images and the traditions of the Old Testament to point to the fulfillment of them in Christ. And in this case, he's using the story of the generation that came out of the Exodus or came out of Egypt because of the Exodus under Moses' deliverance, who first received the law and the rich traditions of festivals and worship that uh, these Jewish people were still following today, who were preached a good news that there was a land of rest. There was, a, there was a place that they could enter into that was where God had prepared for them, a place of rest, a land of plenty and of promise. But when it came to the point where they needed to take the steps that faith required, they discovered their faith wasn't strong enough. And they chose not to believe. Having believed already, they chose to stop believing. Now, this opens up a whole rich theological conversation about salvation and its nature and finding it and losing it. And I just want to be clear. I believe that the language of Scripture is that when we are birthed into the child, the family of God, it is a birth experience. That God saves and God keeps and I believe in what we call eternal security. But there's a difference between that and treating faith lightly and cheaply. It is not easy believism. And it's why Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. Faith requires perseverance in some way. I'm not going to work out the biblical math on that. But I want to honor what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And because we today see people walking away from a faith that once seemed vibrant, very well-known Christians who have written many books and influenced tens of thousands of people who have uh, been deconverted, as the contemporary phrase is, but have not just left the faith themselves, but have evangelized others to leave with them. Because we see this, we understand the danger of what this writer is talking about. And so let's not try to soften it. Let's try to embrace it fully and, and understand what he's saying to us. And Basically, 
there's a big idea here. There's one of two big ideas that we're just going to land on as we, as we understand what he means by this. And the big idea is this. Faith is not something to be treated lightly or taken for granted. Faith itself, like the Christian life, is a journey. The first step of faith is trusting in Jesus. But that faith requires, quite literally, according to Jesus, a daily commitment to stay in it and follow Jesus. And when life gets hard, and when our false or unrealistic expectations, or the false ideas that false shepherds and other ideologies have tapped into that faith capacity that we have, guide us in the wrong direction, and we believe conspiracies and false teachings and prophetic words of people who claim to speak for God but are not, it's very easy to have that faith either lead us down a false path or lead us to a point of disillusionment where we surrender. Again, I'm not going to try to work out the salvific mathematics about this. That's the two big words there. You look them up. I just want you to understand that the writer of Hebrews is saying, take your faith seriously. And that's why Verse 11, after some more explanation of this, he says, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience, the Old Testament people. That risk is always there. And so the parallel is this. Uh, the rest for the Old Testament people of God was the promised land. The rest for us is the rest that comes from life in Jesus, eternal life, that, that promise of life now and forever that is eternal in the peace of Christ. The good news is the promise of that if we, by faith, step in obedience into that life. And the risk is that we understand uh, the challenge of truly embracing that and not being drawn away. And so that leads us to a second big idea, and that is that minimally what we take from this warning that is meant to be unsettling, meant to help us understand that our, there is constant battle for the loyalty of our faith, the direction of our faith, or even continuing in our faith. That leads us to this big idea. Faith is something to be guarded, strengthened, and maintained. Faith is meant to grow. It grows within our journey with Jesus. And as we look at this, just quickly, I want to list three ways that as a Christian, we can guard, strengthen, and maintain our faith. And I want to encourage all of these are things that we are to do together. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. What does the work of growing our faith look like without turning that into working our way to heaven? Well, first of all, our faith thrives in community. 
It's the whole idea of let us. The whole, the whole of the New Testament is not written to individuals to read on their own. It's written to churches, to spiritual communities. And the language throughout the exhortations of life in community, throughout the whole of the New Testament is in community. And in this we see let us, we need to do this together. The writer of Proverbs says, walk with the wise and become wise, but associate with fools and you get in trouble. It's common wisdom, but yet it's equally true of faith. That's what makes it really hard right now in this season of isolation to maintain a, a strong faith in these seasons of waiting. But we are still together, and you need to come together. You need to be with the people of God where you see their faith and your faith is bolstered where we can believe not only alongside each other, but for each other and build up each other in our faith. Second thing, our faith thrives in community. Our faith feeds on God's word. I want to be really clear. Your faith is not going to grow and be strong and endure if you are not feeding it with God's word. Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There's a little word used twice in that passage. It's the preposition ek. It's translated here by, but it's actually far more colorful than that. It has two layers to it. It means uh, coming out from and to. It's the same word that Matthew uses in his begats, um, to speak about Jesus coming from Mary. It's about origination. And what Paul is saying to the church at Rome and to you and I today is that your faith is so cl closely tied to your time, knowledge, and grasp of God's word that it's as though it comes from there. That's how important it is that you be in God's word. It's interesting that so many of the, quote, faith movements spend so little time actually in the word of God, but will abuse it on surface and spend a lot of time with current and contemporary mystical statements of prophecy, 98% of which are baloney. Test the spirits, and how do you do that? By the word of God. People are being drawn away right now by the whole new mystical prophetic movement that is rooted in man's experiential, supposed direct revelation from God. And it is not the word of God. Just go back and look at all of the, quote, prophets who made certain predictions about the last election. And recognize that the standard for prophecy in Scripture is complete correctness. And that's an apologetic itself against the modern prophecy movement. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't speak knowledge to people, and there are not those with that gift of prophecy. But the gift of prophecy is primarily forthtelling, not foretelling. The gift of prophecy is bringing God's word to bear on God's people in an exhorting way. In a sense, I'm exercising the gift of prophecy today by challenging us to guard our faith. And if you're not part of a community, and if you aren't personally diving into God's word, that same gift of faith that God has given every human being, all that Satan needs to do is just to distract us and pull us away. Peter wrote that we are to be on guard for Satan 
goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's a harsh warning of equal weight with what the writer of Hebrews is giving us today. Our faith thrives in community. Our faith feeds on God's word. And then third, our faith grows through obedience. Very often where people stall in their spiritual journey and and many times will just eventually walk away from it, it's because when push comes to shove, they just couldn't put into action what that faith required. That's what happened to the people of God, the nation of Israel, and it's why a whole generation missed out on the promise, on experiencing the promise. And it is still true of us today. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its founding on the rock. What did he say? Those who hear these words of mine and put them into practice. Your faith gets stronger every time you obey. Your faith gets stronger every time it's tested and you say, am I going to stay with it? And you survive that test. You develop a spiritual track record that makes you more confident of the future because you can look back with confidence at what God has done as you have obeyed him in faith. Let me just end with that verse that we landed on midway through from Hebrews 4.11. Let us, therefore, because of everything we've shared, just quickly today, let us then, together, make every effort to enter into that race, to build one another up, to grow in our faith, to not take it lightly, but to cherish it, feed it, protect it, and to do that for and with one another, because we are the church by God's grace and through faith. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for even the difficult passages. Sometimes pastors, and I certainly would confess, my desire would be to soften, to take away some of the bite, some of the tension in passages that challenge us outside of our familiar ideas. And yet, Father, those are where often our faith grows most deeply. And so I pray today, having heard this warning that it has been shared in love, as indeed the author intended it, and certainly the Holy Spirit who inspired him did. And I pray that these words have been an encouragement. And Father, may we together, may we together cultivate, deepen, strengthen our faith in holy and godly fear. In Jesus' name.